live in St. Louis, Tim Portlock's work might look vaguely familiar. These giant digital installations show cityscapes where abandoned buildings share space with shiny new construction. There is blight and there is wealth all in the same frame. It's one of the things that interests me about um, architecture. The way that buildings are uh, designed and constructed suggests um, a social model. So these buildings that uh, that I've scanned, they imagined a way of people living and working. And by virtue of the fact that they're no longer uh, livable, has a, a big implication for uh, the social model that they were meant to um, facilitate. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. But while Tim Portlock's installations include images of St. Louis, they aren't portraits of St. Louis. They remix real buildings into new imaginary landscapes. The latest exhibition of his work is called Nichols from Heaven, and you can see it for just three more weeks at the Contemporary Art Museum St. Louis. And there, Tim Portlock is being honored as one of three artists in the 2020 Great Rivers Biennial Arts Award program. It honors emerging and mid-career artists in the St. Louis region. Each gets a $20,000 stipend and a museum exhibit. And joining us today to talk about his work is Tim Portlock. Tim, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. So I have to ask, it's such an eye-catching name. What's the idea behind Nichols from Heaven? So it's a play on the Depression-era musical called Pennies from Heaven. Mm. And uh, the, the, the musical was, has been thought of as a uh, coping mechanism for people going through that experience. Um, I'm drawing a parallel between some of the experiences that are described in my work, which are contemporary experiences and the experiences of the 1930s. Hmm. So would you say we're living in a similar moment now as as bad as the Great Depression? I would say uh, that's the case for some people Mm -hmm. and not everyone. Um, One of the things that uh, has interested me for a while is how... uh, sort of public awareness through the media and popular culture has changed uh, regarding uh, uh, empty and abandoned buildings. Hmm. So in in around 2008, uh, there was a general sense of anxiety about um, the idea of an empty building. And since then, I think... uh, Empty and abandoned buildings are viewed more as an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so our uh, public sort of discourse about empty buildings is and is more about how they're being converted into um, uh, a new construction. We're, we're going to put so, lofts in there, right? This is the, the way of spiffying up the city. Right, right. Uh, and I think that um, when you hear about how... Uh, uh, a city is improving, oftentimes it's put in terms of about new construction. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I think it's important to think about uh, how, who, who is that uh, actually a measure for? Like a lot of, of us cannot participate in, um, in that new construction, cannot mm-hmm. buy a new place. So the flip side of this is some people are going to get a fancy new loft building. Somebody else might get displaced out of their neighborhood. 
Correct. Is this something that I, I guess I would call that gentrification? Um, is this something that was on your radar even before? You mentioned 2008 is, is when you saw people talk about these buildings differently. Is, is this something you've seen in, in your life and in your time here in St. Louis? So before I uh, moved to St. Louis, I lived in Philadelphia for about mm -hmm. 12 years, which has a huge number of empty and abandoned buildings. And initially, the uh, impetus to make the work was just sort of responding to the volume of the buildings uh, in Philadelphia and how people uh, had sort of put those in the back of their consciousness as they went about their day-to-day -day lives. Um, and then about a year uh, into making the kind of work that I do, the 2008 collapse happened. And so uh, all of a sudden sort of put all of these buildings into the foregrounds of everyone's consciousness across the country. Um, Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. So it, it's interesting then what you're doing um, with these abandoned buildings and what we might think of as blight. Um, you're putting them into these big digital installations. How big are these digital installations, I should ask? So it ranges in size from about five by six feet up until uh, 18 by 10 feet. Okay. So these are, these are some very big, there, there's some vastness here. And in this work, you're, you're kind of consciously echoing 19th century American landscape painting. Well, what does that element speak to as you're looking at these buildings? So one of the things that interests me about 19th century American landscape painting is it was the first uh, American genre of art. So literally the first set of artists who called themselves uh, Hudson River Valley School mm -hmm. painters were probably born in an era when America was not a country. Uh, during this time, uh, there was uh, uh, national landscape traditions associated with different countries. So there was the French landscape tradition, British landscape tradition, and so on. And each tradition uh, had a specific set of visual conventions that were meant to communicate something about the national identity. So I'm interested in uh, American landscape painting as sort of the first uh, American art movement where artists literally are thinking about and defining uh, what it means to be an American. And so through their mm -hmm. images, they're articulating an idea about American identity. Um, sort of part of that is they oftentimes paint landscapes that, that actually exists in the real world. However, they take a lot of creative licenses with how those real places are painted to uh, communicate that uh, these sort of notions of American identity are actually embedded in the landscape. Um, and so I was really interested in using these conventions to make images about contemporary American cities as a way of contrasting these sort of American ideals with uh, contemporary lived reality. Hmm. So you're taking that same creative license, but rather than sort of prettifying it and making it look all, all beautiful, um, you almost make it look dystopian. Is that intentional? Well, well I mean, I, I wouldn't say, I, I, I think what I'm doing is I'm contrasting sort of the sublime elements of the 19th century, so of uh, American landscape painting. So that's sort of one of the, sort of hallmark elements mm -hmm. is uh, sublime skies and uh, showing how the landscape is blessed by God. And then also um, 
there's there's a reoccurrence of the notion of what the landscape is. Is it a wilderness? Is it an ordered space? Um, and so those are the things I kind of incorporate into the imagery that I have. One of the things that happened uh, uh, starting in 2008 was people rethinking uh, what a deteriorating city is and how to how to use it, and um, that's something that I try to uh, talk about in my work. Uh, also, drawing parallels between um, cities that are uh, degrading and 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 also like the idea of like feral wilderness. Mm -hmm. So we should talk about your technique because I think this is really interesting. You use some real recognizable buildings in St. Louis City and, and also in the Metro East. How are you capturing them and, and you know, utilizing them in these digital installations? So the, the main tool that – so all of this work is digitally created. Um, but the, the main tool in my process is a visual effects software. 3D animation software. And typically what I do is um, I just make 3D models, which mm. uh, uh, another way we can think about these are virtual models of real uh, existing uh, buildings and places. Uh, but increasingly I've been using a drone to 3D scan uh, buildings, which is a, a much quicker process and actually more accurate. Mm. So I, I've actually used my drone quite a bit within St. Louis to scan some of the buildings that have really stood out. So to give us an example. What's a building that our, our listeners might be familiar with that you're working with um, in these images? Well, there's a high-rise building in East St. Louis that, I, that I've scanned. Um, uh, I, I don't know what it's called, hmm. but it's visible from a distance because it's the highest building in East St. Louis. Yeah, I feel like I know exactly what building you're talking about, and I'm sitting here like a fool not knowing the name of it. But, but yeah, that, that high rise in East St. Louis, that's part of it. Give us another one. What's, what's one that people might know? Well, there's a cylinder-shaped building at the northern edge of, of St. Louis that um, – uh, was actually designed to be one of two cylinders and that has a uh, cylinder-shaped buildings that was meant to house a nightclub, uh, grocery store, uh, bowling alley, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it's an example of sort of mid-century modern architecture. Yeah, that um, one. And, and again, I'm drawing a blank on what the name of this one is, but that is such a recognizable building. And that has such an eerie feeling because it's been completely abandoned. There used to be a, a restaurant at the top that revolved. Um, and it was kind of like, I don't know, it almost represented this mid-century modern idea of life. And, and now it's empty. Right. And that's one of the things that interests me about um, architecture in general is that I think uh, – the way that buildings are uh, designed and constructed suggests um, a social model. So these buildings that, uh, that I've scanned, they imagined a way of people living and working. And by virtue of the fact that they're no longer uh, livable, has a, a big implication for uh, the social model that they were meant to um, facilitate. Mm -hmm. And so in my work, I'm showing newer buildings with different designs in contrast to these older buildings that have been deteriorating. Mm -hmm. 
I do want to mention um, you previously worked on a pretty cool project in Paris, and it sounds like it was somewhat preparation for what you're doing here in St. Louis. What, what were you working on there? So for, for several years, uh, I was working at the University of Paris, um, working on projects that were called uh, virtual cultural heritage projects. So this was in the early 2000s when 3D computer gaming technology was uh, still somewhat of a novelty hmm. in certain academic circles. And um, in, for these projects, the idea was that we would create a virtual version of a different parts of a city, but from a different time period to be used as an educational tool. Um, the idea being that you would get insights into the place and time that the writers that people were studying lived in. Hmm. Um, so uh, I would basically do what I was doing now. I would, um, you know, go around and look for specific buildings and create uh, virtual simulations of them and, recon and reconstruct them inside of a computer game engine so that uh, people could interact with them in, in a 3D space. Um, and, and I literally used uh, first-person shooter games <laughs> as the uh, platform for this stuff. It sounds um, like that work would have been much easier if you had had a drone at that time. It, it would, but I think part of the, actually, I have to admit what made that job fun is um, some of the buildings no longer existed, so hmm. that there was a big research component. So I would have to uh, f locate images of the buildings that no longer existed, which, I, you know, I also do a little bit of that in my artwork. So you kind of geeked out on that research. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking today to Tim Portlock. His, uh, his current exhibition is called Nickels from Heaven. It's part of the Great Rivers Biennial uh, that's now up at the Contemporary Art Museum, St. Louis. You can see it through February 21st. Tim, it's interesting to hear you talk about working with these, these video games and talking about all this digital work, because I understand your formal training is in painting. When did you make the switch from this, this medium that feels so old-timey to these things that are, are so modern? Uh, late, uh, probably in the late nineties, uh, I had actually, so yeah, most of my formal training is in painting and I actually, um, made a living for a few years as a mural painter and, uh, I made paintings to, uh, be presented in, uh, art galleries and museums. And then about 10 years of that, um, I discovered the internet, um, <laughs> which, uh, seemed like a really great medium for artists to show their work to an entirely new kind of audience. Um, and then also, uh, I just became really enchanted with all the things that you could do with uh, digital imaging that you, that you couldn't do with uh, painting. So did you give up painting entirely? I did. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like a clean ending. I mean, I, you know, for a while I was doing both, but I would say I, I do consider the work that I do now in the tradition of painting. Mm -hmm. So I, I definitely compose my images and uh, think about, um, as I mentioned earlier, the relationship between uh, my work and the vocabulary of, of painting. 
So Tim, so I guess I'm. I guess you could say like I'm. I'm still a painter, but I don't use oil paint. Hmm. Um, you're still a painter, but you're not using a paintbrush. Right. Hmm. So, Tim, we've talked to the other two winners of the 2020 Great Rivers Biennial Arts Award program, and they are both um, much younger, just kind of getting started in things. You're much further in your career. You're the chair of the art studio program at Washington University. So what does an honor like this mean for you at this point in your career? Well, I, I still feel like I'm kind of new to St. Louis, so it was really it was really great to be recognized by the Contemporary Art Museum and uh in St. Louis. And then also uh, the the award offered a lot of resources to make the work that I've been wanting to make for a while. Um, like scale is really important to the impact of the images that I create. And I've always wanted to make really, really large images. And so this opportunity uh, allowed me to do that. So you were able to get these as big as they are because of the fact um, that you'd been chosen for this award. Right. And and actually, one other thing I would add to that, it's not even just the money. It's like the size of the exhibition space. That makes sense. It certainly makes sense with these. And I imagine the exposure can't hurt either. I mean, you obviously have this this great job at Wash U, but it seems like this is work that uh, that a lot of people would be interested in who don't even realize that they're interested in contemporary art. I I, I hope so. I mean, I'm I'm I really I I really like so part of like as I mentioned earlier, part of my background is as a mural painter, and one of the things that I sort of keep from that is I like to make work that speaks to a broad public. Mm -hmm. And even if someone does not necessarily have a familiarity with uh, Hudson River Valley School painting or the vocabulary of the history of painting, I, I, I do want to make work that uh, brings people in. So this show has been up for a while now. We're kind of catching you at the end of the exhibit and, and urging people to go see it before it's too late. So you've had some time to get into the next thing. What are you working on now? Well, uh, I'm, I'm actually making a few more images that I consider part of the series that's um, in the in the at CAM. More nickels uh, from a, heaven. Yeah, I have a I have another actually show at another museum coming up. What museum is that? It's, is it is it too soon to say? I I'm I, yeah I'm not I I have to wait until they officially announce, but it's at a museum on the East Coast. Okay, um, so that's exciting. Um, but you know I've I've been putting off actually making a series of work about St. Louis for about four years, and so once I finish this body of work, that's what I want to work on next. Wow. And what do you see as the ultimate home for that? Is the idea to make that a museum exhibition so you can have that scale again? Ideally, ideally, um, I think, uh, you know, these these kinds of projects take a couple years, uh, mm -hmm. like research, uh, uh, choosing what buildings are appropriate. And I actually would like to do interviews for this particular project to get a sense of how uh, people each have a different conception of the city. Mm. And I've, I'm hoping that over the course of planning and making that body of work, that an opportunity will present itself to exhibit it somewhere in the city, or at least nearby. 
Well, boy, that sounds like a great exhibit. And I have to say, hearing you describe it, I think it's it's absolutely safe to say we're going to make you come back on this show to talk about what you've learned and, and what your exhibit ends up saying about St. Louis. So, Tim Portlock, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, and I hope we can have you back to do it again. Well, thank you for having me on your show. More reporting from the St. Louis on the Air team is available at stlpublicradio.org. And be sure never to miss a conversation by subscribing to our podcast. You can find St. Louis on the Air on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts on the App Store. St. Louis on the Air is produced by Evie Hemphill, Lara Hamden, Emily Woodbury, and Alex Hoyer. The audio engineer is Aaron Dorr. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Fenske. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.